Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Irish Studies, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. My name is Aidan Beattie. I'm one of the co-hosts of this channel. Today we're joined by Tino O'Toole and Linda Connolly, two very well-known people within Irish studies. Tino O'Toole teaches at the University of Limerick uh, in in literary studies um, and is also a founder of Link in Cork the Community Resource Centre for Lesbians, Bisexual Women and Their Families uh, in both Cork City and beyond. Linda Connolly is a professor of sociology at Maynooth University, and both uh, Professor Connolly and Dr. O'Toole really work at the intersection of of gender studies and women's studies and Irish studies. And that's probably what we're going to talk a lot about today, because we're talking about a book that was initially published in 2005 and has now recently been republished, entitled Documenting Irish Feminism's The Second Wave, um, published by Arlen House with distribution by Syracuse University Press in the US. Uh, so this book originated in a project on the Irish women's movement, at UCC's sociology department. And I was wondering if you could both or both or one of you could start by talking about that project and what it sought to achieve. I think, Linda, this is going to be your call because it's really, that was your project that, that began that. So I, I can come in then if you like. Okay, well, so I, I moved to UCC uh, in 1997, just after I, I finished my PhD and um, I was in the sociology department, obviously. But as you said at the beginning, Aidan, both, both Tina and I, we work a lot across different disciplines and I suppose across different um questions in the wider community um over over the last I'm, I'm looking at the day 2005 and realizing how such a long time ago it was but at that time I suppose um so so first of all when I moved to UCC I started uh working quite closely with colleagues both in women's studies and also uh, with colleagues in the field of literature Professor Pat Cochran in particular um, Ava Walsh and others, um, but also in the whole field of applied social studies with uh, Liz Kiley and Moraline. And we started to have conversations about the position and place of feminism 
both in our own university uh, in a scholarly sense, but also in the broader sense of Irish studies. And, you know, today it has become, you know, much more acceptable to write PhDs on gender and feminism and sexuality and intersectionality and all these <laughs> terms that we use. But I think at that stage, you know, there was less currency for feminist analysis and research. And the starting point really for this project was I had written a PhD, of course, on the Irish women's movement and published another book. Um, but that was really a very theoretical scholarly exploration. And I think we decided that, you know, we were we were sort of sick of other colleagues saying to us, uh, there's the problem is there's no evidence. You know, there's there's nothing there. You know, there were no I'm exaggerating, but there, you know, there weren't many women writers, for instance, in Munster was one of the things I think that was said. Um, I remember others saying to me, gender, and that's that's not really a problem in the academy, et cetera, et cetera. So the kinds of assumptions, I suppose, we 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 wanted to challenge those, first of all, Aidan. And then secondly, it was very much embedded in that project that began in the 1980s, particularly around pioneering women's historians, uh, such as Margaret McCurtain and Mary Cullen. Margaret had taught um, Tina, I think, hadn't she? Or you certainly knew her in UCD. And Mary Cullen I, had taught me. So we had wonderful uh, mentors and exemplars in that sense. And that project, uh, and others indeed who were writing at the time, Margaret Ward, uh, Louise Ryan, etc., were had, had started a project of recovery work. <clears throat> so this particular book, Documenting Irish Feminism, and the project, the Irish Women's Movement Project, was less about sort of our grand theoretical uh, publications, which we were doing anyway, it was more about recovering the sources that we knew were there, uh, but weren't accessible. And then secondly, about publishing those in an accessible way. Uh, Roisin Conroy, who set up uh, Attic Press, which is a feminist publishing house in Dublin, and who was a, an, an activist herself in Irish Women United, one of the organisations we talk about, a trade unionist, um, a feminist activist, uh, she she had developed an archive. And so one of the things we did was we accessed that archive and the ambition was to publish some of the content of that archive in this book so that the future generations would have access to the archive of the Irish Women's Movement. So I hope that explains, as was the origin of the project, it was really a coming together of scholars who were very active in terms of our own research, theoretical publications, wanting to bring together, uh, pool our resources to make accessible and available sources that would lead to further scholarship. So it was very much about developing the field uh, as much for others as for our own work. Mm. I mean, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think that's that really lays it out very clearly. But I suppose, I mean, my background, because I had done the MA in Women's Studies in the very early days in UCD. So I was one of the first um cohorts of students to take that I mean it was brand new and it is I mean Linda you're absolutely right it is funny to, to kind of think it really is nearly 20 years ago when we're thinking about this project you know which is kind of scary but in terms of how much things have changed in the meantime women's studies um, you know it really was a very new thing in Ireland um, when I was doing it in the 1990s and it was it, it was met with quite a bit of resistance so being taught by people like Margaret McCurtain who taught the history modules on on that on that program was certainly part of my um, you know formative period let's say coming into this project but also I think the important thing maybe to underline here is that kind of maybe multimodal approach to 
feminist analysis that was coming through from women's studies at the time. So you had a very multidisciplinary approach where literature um, social science, history, and, you know, a, a variety of other, you know, visual arts, uh, other subjects are being taught um, all together. And so when you then, as, as certainly I did, went on to do um, the PhD, when you then go on um, and you, to some extent, go back into what were then very traditional disciplinary silos, you begin to realise that maybe there isn't so much space in the academy in that period for that kind of cross-cutting for the kind of, you know, intersectional, if you like, approach, but also that multimodal approach that Linda's talking about and certainly working on this project. So I came into the project as as a researcher, as someone who was, you know, at the time um, that the Monster Women Writers Project, which was a sister project to this began, was just completing my PhD. Um, there, there hadn't really been too many opportunities to work in, in that sort of way with a group of scholars who are coming from, as Linda says, sociology, applied social studies and, and literature on the, on the wider project. So that was a huge opportunity. And I think, we, I think the book that, that Linda and I produced in particular, um, you know, I think espouses a lot of that, that kind of attitude of that approach. So, so the book itself then has this really interesting structure um, that actually makes it quite fun to read, right? That it, it's both a secondary analysis and then this collection of primary documents running through that. So is, is that structured in that way because of that desire to, to recover certain archival sources or is it this kind of more multimodal thing, like a, think, a methodology yeah, that you're talking about, Dina, or I both? Think if, I, if I can come in there, I mean, I think there's a bit of both going on because I think certainly the documents, I mean, from the very beginning of this project, Linda and I were both really clear that the documents were central. And in fact, I mean, and Linda might say a little bit, a bit more about that in the beginning, actually just getting our hands on the documents, having the documents catalogued was the first part of the project, even before, long before a book was sort of ever thought of. Um, but for me, I suppose because at the time I was very involved in Link in Cork and I was involved as a co-editor of the Link magazine and working with a really brilliant graphic designer there, Petra Stone. And the Link magazine um, at the time had, a, you know, a, a kind of an uncannily similar format to our book, um, you know, so putting together photographs and different kinds of movement documents, but also interviews with with activists and and you know kind of current events at the time so I suppose it really was in so many ways I, I only really realized this looking back on it an organic project that sort of grew out of all of these different experiences so that the kind of the look that Petra was producing in in her graphic design for the magazine we quite happily imported into the book project but one of the um one of the other um, I suppose, elements of this that we haven't really thought about or, or, or mentioned yet is the kind of pedagogical side of it. So um, as, you know, pedagogues, as people who, who kind of who were very clear about the, if you like, mission of women's studies to educate as, a, as an educational um, project, we were really clear that we wanted a book that wouldn't be um, a kind of dusty monograph that would be of use in the classroom and even today colleagues I mean even in the recent conference that I ran at UL colleagues are still coming up and talking about how useful this book is as a as a source as a resource for the classroom so there are various different things I think coming into the making of it. 
Yeah, I think I, I suppose in, in a way as well, if you think about the equipment um, at that stage, and I should say, of course, we, we, we acquired funding for this. That was the other impetus. Uh, the government of Ireland had just launched the programme for research in third level institutions, which was a government funded research project. Um, those were the good old days when that started that's since all been scrapped. Um, but so these were kind of university wide applications. And in a way, I think, Tina, you probably agree with me. It, we were very uh, strongly supported by the librarian at the time, John Fitzgerald. And it showed the importance of having allies in the man- management structure as well and in the, the funding structures. Um, and he was very keen to uh, deposit the Attic Press archive and to make that also available in the library uh, in, in UCC, which it still is, by the way, to this day. Um, I'm always telling everybody, researchers, PhDs, to have a look at the Attic Press archive because it, it covers so many questions and issues from um, the period. So, so the funding was important. And in a way, you know, I, I'm, actually, I'm on the um, management team of the Digital, Digital Repository of Ireland today. And I think in a way, Tina, I like to think of us as pioneers yet again um, of, um, of the kind of digital humanities in a way, because Petra, who you mentioned, who did wonderful work. And then obviously we had the support of photographers um, as well, uh, Claude de Boyd, um, Derek Spear, etc. Yeah, it's so um, who, who were there when these events happened? First-hand uh, photographic accounts, you know, so a lot of the photographs are from, from um, those two photographers in particular. But um, this was uh, Petra with a scanner. It wasn't the kind of technology I'm looking at the digital repository today. Again, if you look at their website, incredible resources, um, huge advances in technology in terms of digital humanities. So in a way, this was very much, um, as you said, it was um, a work in progress approach. We were learning and it was amazing what um, what we could do with, with a scanner, scanning documents and then uploading them um, in this way. So um, so I think that uh, that's quite important. I suppose it was so it was just as much as, you know, we, we wanted to preserve the documents. We wanted to make them accessible in a book, but we also wanted to tackle the questions that had both, I suppose, uh, driven Irish feminisms, remember, is in the title. We we don't have a, you know, we weren't interested, I suppose. We have our own interests, don't we, Tina? But we weren't interested in pushing one particular agenda. We want to look at the different questions and divisions and aspects of Irish feminism in as much as we could, again, with the documents as the centre. So we were very interested in class. Um, you know, we did our best. It was more difficult in some areas. There was a lot of material, obviously, on reproductive rights because there had been sort of at that stage how many years 20 years now we've had nearly 40 years of activism around reproductive rights um contraception in the 70s in particular abortion then in the 90s um and we've had a lot of abortion activism since um so so, so there were some fields where there was a lot more information and uh, but others i think you'd agree tina where there was less information so for instance we were located in cork we, neither of us had grown up in Northern Ireland. And again, it was difficult, I think, to access materials, even though we had some materials. But a lot of work has been done since, thankfully, on some of these questions. Class was very important as well, I think. It ran through all of um, the chapters. A lot of the organisations 
um, contrary to the view that of women's lib, as Margaret McCurtain used to call it, um, as being a kind of a group of up to middle class women, um, there was a lot of class politics in the women's movement, which I think has been lost along the way somewhere. Um, sexualities, um, you know, all these issues that perhaps were harder to talk about at the time in the 70s. I suppose we were trying to, again, recover some of those narratives. Mm-hmm. So I, I might go back to something Tina talked about, of like this as an organic project. And, and reading your book, I would have assumed that there was a certain amount of negotiation you had to engage in, since you're both academics and in many cases also writing about groups that you, you yourselves are involved with. And yet it, it sounds like that wasn't a problem um, or am I, am I misinterpreting it or misunderstanding it? I think it was, well, it's kind of hard to remember all the kind of various ins and outs, but I know that like certainly in terms of, cause I, you know, the, the, as, as Linda has said, the material on LBT rights was quite hard to, to access. And in fact, some of the material that we used, you know, wasn't in the uh, attic archive at all. So I was using the Gay Community News archive, which is now the the, um, the queering the Queer Ireland archive, which is available now in the National Library. But again, it wasn't at the time. It was just the the archive of a small community newspaper in Dublin. Um, so finding documentary evidence of uh, at the time, you know, quite marginalised and fairly invisible group in Irish society wasn't all that easy and. And I suppose to, to kind of directly answer your question on that, a lot of the people that I was talking to about using that material were very uncomfortable with some of the material uh, going into the public domain because, you know, um, you know, this, this it wasn't that long after decriminalization of male homosexuality. So the gay men's community in particular had been criminalized but you know women were no more accepted <laughs> in the mainstream community either and there are various different ways of criminalizing a community as we all know um apart from legislative um things so so people were quite um some people i i mean to be fair some people were quite anxious about how the material would be used um what what where it would be what you know what what would happen to it afterwards and some people were quite happy um, so, I mean, frankly, personal friends of mine were happy to give me material on the basis that I would use it for the book and then give it back to them. So that's a lot of that material is still in private hands. It's never been made um, available in any kind of accessible way. In terms of negotiating um, between activism and the academy, that's always that's always a, that's still complicated. That's not I don't think that's a, an issue that any of us have really resolved. So there would have always been a kind of a I mean to go back to what Linda was saying about class, that sense of you know middle class women coming in here taking our taking our documents, telling our story, kind of thing, you know, um, and no amount of of talking up your your own working class background is ever <laughs> is ever going to fix that because you're seen as a representative of the bourgeoisie if you're coming from the academy or a big institution like that. So yeah, I, I don't think it was that straightforward. I do think there were. There were issues, certainly. I mean, cla- I mean, the class one is maybe one that Linda um, might talk to to more than than I can. But but certainly, just the kind of that sense of communities feeling anxious about material, anxious about how they'll be represented, about how much material will be made available, and what kind of a story are you going to tell? Is this going to be another, you know, oh, I don't know, negative depiction of of a community? Yeah, I would agree with all of that very much. And I mean, I think in terms of the Attic Press, 
uh, aspect of the project, which which was a lot of the documents really um, on certain, as I said, on certain topics. So the the, the the reproductive rights, absolutely. There's a, there's a, a huge archive on that question, and and and, and rightly so. Um, but I, I I certainly I, I had been look. I also in my previous research had conducted maybe around 50 interviews with feminist activists. So there was a, a whole other background and qualitative dimension to my work on the women's movement. And this was, I suppose, another aspect of that kind of work I've been doing for a long time now, different different stages. So, but I was very fortunate. Again, you know, it, all it takes is, as, as, as Tina said there, that, you know, people have boxes of material. They, some people are very good at keeping stuff. And Roshan Conroy, who, as I said, was in Irish Women United, which I should explain for the listeners, uh, was one of the um, main uh, radical Irish feminist groups in the 1970s. There's quite a a bit in in our book on on that organisation. And it was very much a group that was tackling questions, uh, as as we said earlier, around reproductive rights was crucially important because if women didn't have, you know, first of all, high birth rates, it was a still an issue in the 1970s but secondly you know if women couldn't control their own fertility um you know that that had all kinds of repercussions in terms of women's rights to participate fully in in, in the structures of society um and you have to remember i suppose in the 1970s and 1980s we talk about direct discrimination and indirect discrimination in the workplace for instance particularly around maternity status and um, there is a whole um, case caseload of studies on these questions. So we have to remember that all of these groups were tackling discrimination in whatever form. And some of them, um, such as the Irish Women's Liberation Movement, uh, leading on to then the Council for the Status of Women in the early 1970s, focused on many issues, but uh, quite a, a lot on women's right to work uh, outside of the home. Whereas other groups were more concerned with other kinds of discriminations and inequalities in society. So to give you an example, Irish Women United was probably one of the first groups to address sexuality. But also, you know, in advocating for reproductive rights, this is the intersectionality piece. Tina has just done a wonderful conference on intersectionality, which I've been watching from afar, precariously looking at everything. It looked amazing. Um, but Irish Women United weren't just advocating for a woman's right to access contraception, which is the universal argument. A woman has a right to, you know, uh, fertility control was the term used at the time. We wouldn't use that today. Um, but also that it should be free. And that's the intersectional piece. So it's one thing to argue for a universal right for women because contraception affects many, many women, um, and um, but also that it should be free. And that's the class aspect, the intersectionality piece. So I wonder if I could ask you to kind of continue talking about that question of, of groups active in the 1970s. Um, I think maybe for people outside of a, a gender studies field, when they think of things like second wave feminism, they think of people like Betty Friedan or Shulamith Firestone. So this this the, this movement or set of movements that you're talking about, obviously, is, is happening at a kind of a global moment. So what makes this similar to what's going on in the US or the UK and what makes it different? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I think one of the things that makes it a little different is it's a little later. It happens, So these things happen a little later in Ireland. Um, so we're talking really about the 1980s in Ireland when we talk about second wave feminism. Yeah, we're, some of these some of these groups begin at the end of the 1970s. 
but it's really the 1980s before they begin to gain traction. And I suppose a lot of that, and this is really Linda's area much more than mine, but a lot of that kind of, you know, coalesces around that 1983 referendum. And we see that as the big kind of flashpoint moment of feminism in Ireland. I think one of the, I mean, it's an obvious point perhaps, but it's it's worth making. It's it's one that I find myself making more and more to my students uh, is, is that point about Catholicism because the church is a much more powerful force in Irish society in the, you know, certainly in my childhood in the 70s and early 80s than, than it is now. And so I think that that, that creates a, di- a very different cultural context for feminism than perhaps in, you know, we'll say in Britain, uh, where the NHS is is, is available uh, to women or in, in the United States or in other, we'll say in Germany um, at the time. I think there's, there, there are cultural differences. Um, for women of my mother's generation who were born in the 1940s or even into the 1950s, they had grown up in a theocratic state. So to talk openly about their lives, to talk openly about matters of sexuality or matters of fertility, um, really wasn't. I mean, it, it wouldn't have been countenanced. I, I mean, you know, I mean, even in a very simple way, uh, I think uh, for for most of our parents' generation, and it may be a generalization, I think the idea of putting your head above the parapet at all to talk about anything in public was seen as as perhaps the worst thing you could do, bringing shame on the family in, in one way or the other. I think my mother, my mother's main concern when I started, you know, marching in pride marches and things like that was that I would somehow accidentally end up in the media um, that I would be on TV like every time I would leave the house I'd be told please don't appear on the six o'clock news you know that was actually her main concern whatever I was actually doing in terms of radical politics was one thing but you know bringing a program on the family by doing it in any kind of a public way was worse again you know so I, I think that to to be in a, to be in Chicago or to be in you know New York or to be in even in Birmingham or in in, in Liverpool in the period um, and to, to be involved in any kind of social activism was one thing where you were to some extent an autonomous uh, being in a, in a kind of a, you know, in a, in a big city. But to be in Ireland, which is a small place where everybody knows everybody else and where there's only one national media channel, you're doing it very much in the glare of all of your family and neighbours. So I do think that imposes its own constraints. Yeah, yeah, I think the international context was really important in, in, in three ways, I think. So first of all, as, as you say quite quite right, rightly, um, the, the writings of the women's movement, particularly in the United States, where, where they were being read and um, in a way, and, and also but the, the, the methods, if you like, of radical feminism in particular, uh, which was you know, the, I suppose we might say, broadly speaking, um, theoretically, that, you know, the liberal feminist framework is that you you change society by changing the existing structures of power. And what's interesting is, you know, we do need more women in the academy. We need more women doctors. We need more women, you know, you know, and we certainly did at that stage in all areas of public life, uh, politicians, etc. So that argument is well taken. But I suppose the radical feminist approach was that, it's not just enough to get the women in. Um, you need to change the structures, not just of the institutional structures of society, but we need to change society as a whole. For instance, the family, the idea of the family, such a sacred institution in Ireland, the idea of questioning that, the nuclear family based on marriage. Um, so, so, so all of these ideas internationally were, sounds a bit crude, but they were sort of being imported into Irish society in a way. But what was really important, not just those ideas and texts and books, 
also the methods of the radical social movements of the 1960s were also uh, being mobilised in Ireland at this time. And what was very important, again, in terms of the radical questioning, the, the sort of throwing out of the ideas of, of the nuclear family, family of uh, what, we now, what we later called heteronormativity, we must remember the language of the time was quite different um, in the early days of second wave feminism. Um, you know, all of these issues uh, that, you know, uh, you know, women have autonomous bodies, they can make autonomous choices about their bodies. Um, all of these kind of, I suppose, liberal ideas, uh, but also the radical ideas around that were uh, being you know, as I said, discussed through the medium of texts, of literature, all of these things. But the methods of the social movements, such as um, the radical feminist groups of consciousness raising, uh, which were which were set up in different parts of the country. And literally, I mean, you think about it, why would this be so radical? Well, for exactly the reason Tina said, it wasn't the case that women came together and talked about an unmarried mother, for instance. You know, these were all kind of taboo, stigmatized questions, uh, shrouded in silence. And so that idea of women only groups, uh, and again, we've had this in the academy debates about women's studies versus gender studies. But at that time, that was very, very powerful in terms of challenging the patriarchal norms of society. And some of these women were also very active in the labor movement. They were active in, you know, all kinds of um, socialist groups. Some were very active in Republican uh, groups, some were very anti-Republican. Um, so, you know, you had that, I suppose, confluence of ideas, perspectives, politics, very much of not just what was happening in Ireland, but the international um, social movements. I suppose questioning all of the structures, aiming to liberate um, different groups of, in, in Western societies and indeed beyond Western societies uh, at that time. So, so, so the third thing that, so you had the, 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 the literature, the writings questioning uh, women's role in society and, and offering an alternative vision of the kind of role and future our next generations of women could have in society. Um, the second, as I said, being the radical social movements of the late 60s onwards, an international phenomenon. But then thirdly, again, some of the key activists in the Irish women's movement came from the States. Uh, Mary Marr, for instance, one of the founders of the Irish women's uh, liberation movement, and had, were, were very um, were critical in arguing that the same kinds of ideas should be implemented in Ireland. So, and then of course the European, the EEC as it was called, then joining the European Economic Community, again, proved to be very important. You mentioned the decriminalization of homosexuality, Tina, and that again was very much, I suppose, fought through European institutions. So, so by wearing my sociological hat, there were a number of factors, I think, um, sociological factors at this time which broadly speaking were to do with the opening up of Irish society to external outside influences. And feminism was one of those. And I think I suppose what we've always tried to do is to ensure that feminism isn't erased or airbrushed from the meta-narrative of Irish studies as a kind of a footnote, or this was absolutely crucial in changing Irish society beyond recognition um, over a number of decades. But if that movement had not happened, we would be living, you know, you mentioned the theocratic version of our society. We would probably still be living in that kind of society. And um, so that's sort of solidarity 
with women in other parts of the world who are grappling with patriarchal religious structures, etc., is still very much to the fore. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off so so a lot of what you're saying there is kind of gesturing something i i wanted to talk about also that this is obviously not a history that's happening in isolation it's happening in parallel to all these big changes that happened in ireland at, at the end of the 19 at the end of the 20th century into the 21st and it's also really a kind of a motor behind a lot of those changes so if you were to write this book today, or if you were to write like a sequel looking at the 2000s, what has changed in Irish feminism? And I, I wonder if you could particularly talk about um, the fact that Ireland doesn't just go from being a very Catholic society to a nominally non-Catholic society. It also goes from being an almost exclusively white society to a much more racially diverse society. How does that change the nature of feminism in Ireland? Well, I suppose intersectionality is really where, where, you know, is, I mean, this wasn't a word in our vocabulary, certainly <laughs> in the late 90s, early 2000s. I, I mean, you know, migration, I suppose, in both directions is something that I think would be a much bigger part of anything that I would write now. If I, I'm not really sure if you can recreate a project in that kind of way, but, you know, migration, I suppose, it, even though, it's funny, it's not something that we ever spoke about. It's not something that there is a chapter in the book on, say, as a thematic topic. And yet it, it kind of, it underpins almost all of the chapters in the book, because even what Linda's just been talking about in terms of those um, influences overseas and people coming from overseas who are part of the movement here, um, emigration was such an enormous part of anyone's life growing up in Ireland in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, and not just then, but I mean, in the period that we're thinking about. Um, and so for all of the women who were involved in the women's lib movement in those years, the vast majority of their friends and comrades were living overseas and communicating with them at the time. So books and pamphlets and ideas were you know, there was all sorts of transatlantic exchange going on there and kind of trans-European exchange as well. And and yet that's not something that we addressed in a kind of formal way, which is sort of interesting, you know. And it was really only in subsequent work that I did on queer migration that I began to think about the importance of that um, in terms of just, you know, how, how do ideas emerge? How do social movements um, begin to emerge in a culture? Like, how does that happen and, and what prompts that? And as you say, Aidan, I think very much that um, the, the in-migration of peoples from all over the world has, has completely changed the landscape that we're working in now. And um, importantly, Anne Mulhall's recent work on the Massey Journal that's just been launched at IMA um, in the last week 
really uh, highlights and kind of enlivens that whole um, that whole intersectional approach to um, feminist scholarly work um, that that's in tandem with um, migrant rights um, in Ireland. And in some ways, you know, I think. I think even, you know, to think about updating, let's say, or, or reproducing a second edition or, or something like that of, of documenting Irish feminisms now, I think would be to hand it over to some of the newer migrants and ask them to, to kind of to, to, to say what they have to say about the culture that they are inheriting now, those second generation migrants growing up in the culture, perhaps, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think, again, Ireland up until the early 1990s um, really was ascending country in terms of migration, you know, and I know in my first project, a lot of the women I interviewed said that they left Ireland in the 1980s because they just couldn't stay. The atmosphere had changed significantly. So again, to give the broader societal context, you know, you had again, the return of very high rates of emigration, the Ryanair generation, as they were called. Um, You had a series of referenda, uh, you know, underpinned by the quite successful, I would say, I hate to say it in some ways, um, organisation of a kind of a counter-right movement that was always there in terms of, you know, um, opposition to, you know, advances in reproductive rights, in particular women's anything to do with bodily autonomy, sexuality. Um, and we now know, you know, I suppose it's easy now to look back and say the other thing we didn't really uh, focus on, because, again, it just didn't really come up uh, in this context was the mother and baby homes. Tina, I was thinking just as you were talking. And it's not to say that, you know, I, funny in my teaching and every other area of my work, you know, I taught a course on the sociology of the family and I had a huge section on unmarried mothers, you know, but, but I suppose in terms of the documents of Irish feminism, I don't recall one document, one, anything. Now, there was an organisation set up called Cherish and actually it was a brilliant new paper just out in Women's History Review uh, by Lorraine Grimes on that group. And, but, but again, it was, I suppose, in the way today that we know about, I suppose, the sheer societal organisation of mother and baby homes, you know, it took, I suppose, another 20 years for those kinds of issues to emerge. Um, Adrian, does that make sense? You know, in a way that, you know, the, the, I suppose the resources and the knowledge and the openness were not there on that question at the time. And yet, I suppose it was, it should have been, you know, it should have been really, being honest. Um, so, so that's one thing I would, um, easy to say now, but um, I would have integrated more of my own work on these questions, maybe, um, and maybe looked a bit more closely at Cherish or some of those groups. Um, and that's part of the emigration as well, isn't it? The, the um, ooh, what's the diplomatic word? The um, expulsion, I don't know, the, the sending of these problems to the UK. Uh, and again, we're having so many different conversations today about the UK in terms of Brexit. But if you think about it, I suppose the exporting is, is the word of some of those problems to the United Kingdom in particular. So the, the women who went there to either have terminations, and we know there were thousands of women having terminations over the years, but doing it quietly, secretly. Um, the women who went also went to have babies there, um, who, who were then adopted, all of that. And then the women who left, as I said, in the 1980s, because of the, as was that dark period of, uh, of organized opposition and, Again, we write a lot about that in, in the book, um, about how really 
a single issue, again, a successful tactic in terms of social movements, focus on a single issue uh, to, I suppose, try to undo or certainly stymie what was called the liberal tide of the previous decade. And you see this playing out in the United States today. You see, it's all cyclical, isn't it? You know, we, 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 we you know, you think, you know, Ireland is such a liberal society now. You know, the, the, the um, you know, the, the, the referenda on, on marriage, on, uh, on abortion in recent years, etc. You know, they, you know, they suggest Ireland is a liberal society, but, but nothing can be taken for granted. So I think in the last twenty years. Absolutely, that question of the institutional abuses, um, and but thankfully, an awful lot of work has been done on that, and is being done, and it is really a, a human, not just a women's rights issue, a human rights uh, issue. There's a lot of publications coming out, um, and a lot of research, wonderful projects, survivor centred, which is very, very important. Uh, now we did have the Mother and Baby Homes Commission. That's a whole other discussion. Uh, so there is a need still for the kind of analysis we're talking about, which is less about the institutional, um, supporting the institutional norms, and more about questioning and 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 putting uh, lived experience at the centre of the analysis. Um, and then in terms of migration, then absolutely, you know, again we did have some, we did some work on what was called. Again, very much the, the terminology of the time, the community groups, the women's community activism, um, which was, I suppose, more of a, a working class movement, uh, which, you know, came after the 1970s in a way. And there's tremendous growth, growth in local groups centred on really on education as much as political activism. And of course, Certainly, the most liberating thing in my life as a feminist was education. No question about it. Um, you know, particularly in context of my background and everything else, and, and the opportunities my own female relatives had. Uh, some of them were very limited. So, 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 so I can see how that is both a class and a gender question that was very powerful. Um, and the women's studies departments uh, were quite important in going into those communities, and and, and they weren't just. It wasn't kind of preaching the feminist activism. This was, um, you know, education, uh, looking at invisible uh, questions, uh, you know, women writers who had never been looked at before, uh, all these kinds of issues we're talking about. So we see that growth in terms of, in the last 20 years of education, the expansion of education, which was sort of happening anyway, but very much centered on class, uh, coming out of communities themselves, um, and again, that's a, I suppose another form of feminism that we certainly captured, but again has probably become very important in recent decades. And again, in Northern Ireland as well. So, so there's a lot. There's a lot there. Um, with, you know, but thankfully there is a lot of work being done on all these issues. So I don't know. If we need to write another book. Maybe we could maybe <laughs> do a chapter. Yeah, a chapter. Yeah. I think it's <laughs> worth mentioning that I'm actually sitting in one of those community projects at the moment. Like that that's where I am. I'm in Ballyfehan and Cork in the community development project here, which is, you know, one of those projects that came from a grassroots organization for educating working class people and so on and so forth. And you know, some of the initiatives that have come out of here include Link. You know, so that kind of cross-community activism, sometimes with a very small number of people who all know one another and who are kind of willing to work in solidarity, has really been, you know, to go back to what Linda said earlier about the importance of the women's movement in changing the culture, I think a lot of those grassroots movements, they really need to kind of, I think, be put on the record as well. So. 
of course, we were too young to be around in the 70s, I should say. <laughs> Except as, 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 yeah, of course, obviously. And the 80s. Having been born in 1990, obviously, yes. <laughs> oh, I, I must say as well, in terms of that consciousness raising, you know, so, so, so we, we probably missed out on the fun decade, Tina, in terms of the 70s. It, it, it's the other side of it, I suppose. A lot of the women I interviewed, a lot of the actors, they described what they were doing as a, a lot of fun. I mean, there was a lot of conflict and difference as well, no doubt. But um, because there are different perspectives uh, within Irish feminism, no doubt about it. Um, but, 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 um, but in the 80s, certainly when we were in secondary school, um, you know, there was a lot, so that, that 1983 referendum just looms in our heads. There's no question about it. The, um, the Kerry Baby's case, the death of Anne Lovett, Lovett in Granard, a young pregnant girl, she and her baby were found uh, dead in a, at a grotto. You know, these are all iconic events that we lived through um, as well. So there's very much a kind of a, a strong biographical dimension, I think, that we're bringing to our academic work, which which was really questioned for many decades by the sort of, you know, the canon of Irish studies and Irish history, you know, who were emphasising objectivity at all costs. And it's very difficult to, you know, to, to, to adopt that kind of positivist framework um, coming out of those experiences of the 70s and 80s. And those theory is very important, developing very strong theoretical frameworks and methodologies that ensure that the scholarship is very sound, but also doesn't deny, quite frankly, that, that we lived through those those years mm -hmm. as well. So I was wondering if I could ask maybe a little bit about that problem that, that you're obviously trying to address with the book, uh, or were trying to address in 2005, about basically securing recognition for gender studies and women's studies as, as legitimate fields. I, I started my undergraduate degree in 2005, and I don't think I, I don't think women's history was even a thing. And, and that doesn't seem like that long ago to me. And then I, I was shocked as I think Tina used the word 17 years. And that was, <laughs> no, I can't realize I that that's how long ago it was. You suddenly begin to realize your age. Yeah, yeah. Um, so has well, this project been successful? Yeah. Have you succeeded in, in securing that place? I think I think it's much more, I mean, certainly in terms of, um, so I've been teaching at UL for 16 years and certainly the number of people coming to me to looking for supervision for PhDs, for MAs, and even final year projects at undergraduate level on feminist projects, on gender projects, on queer theory and so on and so forth has changed enormously in that like across that period I could almost track that and I think the book is part of that change you know I, I, I'm not sure that I would claim it as a you know as a landmark text as such but it's certainly part of that kind of bigger picture I mean I think that people like Margaret McCurtain working away quietly in the background teaching women's history in UCD um, in the 19, late 1980s, in the 1990s and so on, you can see the number of people who come through like Sinead McCool um, who've come through those classrooms um, subsequently, you know, working, working their way through a sort of a women's history agenda, if you like. And I suppose, I mean, you know, I'm, you know, as, I, as I'm constantly saying, I'm not a historian, you know, I'm, I'm a literature scholar. So for me, um, it's a lot of this is about that kind of multidisciplinary work that we can all do together. So in some ways, I, I, in, I see the book as, as a landmark um, scholarly project in that sense, 
almost more than in terms of what it can do for women's history, uh, you know, in, in kind of showing, in showcasing what can be done when a group of scholars coming from different disciplinary backgrounds, including, by the way, graphic design, can come together and, and create something that, that is a, a lasting resource. Yeah, I would use that word resource. I see the book primarily as a resource and, you know, deliberately designed. As I said, we didn't go down our sort of post-structuralist, whatever it was at the time, (laughs) whatever the theoretical trends at the time. um, You know, clearly it's very informed by our theoretical positions and frameworks. And we we write a lot of of theory, Tina and I, in our our other publications and, and do have worked on a lot of them empirical projects as well, you know, um, qualitative research, interviews, documents. I work a lot with documents uh, as well. Still, I'm working with documents in a, in a different period, in a different time now. But I think I saw this book, certainly from my perspective, as something that would lead to other pathways in the future. And it captures it captures available documents. It, it records the key events. It provides an analysis. But but I I think if anything it has if you know it's it's difficult to say if you know it's it's if it's had a, an impact, um. But I think it is so I know it is used quite a bit, and I know one of the achievements was we were able to use the project as leverage, um, to get the Attic Press archive catalogued and made available with that strong support of the librarian at the time. So so to me. You know, I've worked. Most of the projects I work on have an output like that. You know, there's, you know, we have. I, I recently digitized interviews, or you know, there's, there's some kind of. I recently worked with the military archives to get a file released with a family that, a, a very important file, one of the most important files of the Irish Civil War. But trying to get things, you know, I suppose not having that. Um, I'm trying to say again, be diplomatic yet again. Not saying that I want those resources for me in my work. You know that that actually we want to make these resources available as part of that work. So then that's kind of maybe it might be activism with a small a, but it is important we understand the importance of resources of materials that can I suppose empower other researchers, and and I'm not just talking about researchers of women's studies because. You know, as I said earlier, this is very important that when you're looking at, I suppose, the, the political landscape in the 1980s, that these questions are included alongside the troubles, alongside the terrible recession, uh, the high unemployment. And so it's about, I suppose, claiming that space in knowledge, but also uh, creating a space for further research. So so I, I do think there has been... Um, you know, when you look then at the subsequent, you know, the field day anthology that the, you know, the women, what year was that? I can't remember at this stage. The, the um, What year did the, the field day come out? It was just after, it was around the same time, actually. I remember getting it as part of the project. Um, you know, there were a number of these projects were happening at the same time. And also, I have to say, they were partly a reaction as well to, I suppose, the exclusion of women um, and the exclusion of feminism from very key canonical uh, projects, texts, um, you know, you, we were working, on the, you know, when I started as an undergrad in sociology, um, in the sociology department, there were no female lecturers. The, the first female lecturer came in, I think, second year or third year, and then became my PhD supervisor. God knows what would have happened if she hadn't come. Um, 
you know, um, again, in my department in Cork, again, you know, promotion, promotion in our universities for women was a huge issue. I mean, Margaret McCurtain was never promoted beyond national level. Um, Alan Smith, uh, incredible scholar, you know, hugely important actor in, in the Irish women's movement, in, in, in Irish academia, and more recently in so many campaigns, the same thing, had, had to go to court with UCD and lost. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was the first woman promoted to senior lecturer ever in my department in Cork. Um, you know, so all the, the women were, they just had the presumption they would never progress. So, so we have come a long way, you know, I'm a professor now, so to be your senior lecturer, we're still hanging in there in terms of, yeah. but, you know. But I mean, to go back be, to, sorry, yeah. to go back to what Aidan was saying about that kind of 2005 um, experience of history, I mean, just to give an example of this, and this is totally narcissistic, but I won an entrance scholarship to UCD because I came first in history in Ireland in the matric. Um, so you would have thought that I would have done history, which I did do in first year. But at the end of first year, I gave up history because I just saw there was no place for me there. I was It was very masculinist. It was a very particular narrative. And I, I mean, at the time, Margaret McCurtain, unfortunately, wasn't teaching first years. I didn't encounter her again until I did the MA in Women's Studies. And I did what was then called pure English. So I went into an, an old Middle English and modern English literature degree, which is what I, I did. And arguably, I mean, you know, from a literary point of view, have ended up being a historian anyway, because I mostly work on literary history. But I think I think what's interesting about that is that so in, in that period, so that's I'm talking 1988, 1989 would have been my first year um, in college, just the idea that you know, a young working class woman um, going to UCD on a on a history scholarship um, sees no place for herself in that in that sphere and and leaves it. I, you know, so I think that if if nothing else, I mean, to go back to the biographical, that kind of that kind of tells its own story, really. You know, but now I think the, the that that is not the case. There is a lot of work being done, and you know, a lot of uh, PhDs. You know, it's um, and then I suppose the whole you know, the question gender binaries is also in there. You know, your conference, I think, demonstrated that so well, Tina, as well, from afar. Um, you know, but, you know, all the different um, kind of trans activism and, you know, it's just it's just amazing to think. Um, how, how, far know, things, so how, how much has changed so quickly? Yeah, but yeah, I mean, it is, it, is, it is a rapid change in so many yeah. ways when you, like in terms of yeah. a lifespan, you know. Yeah. I suppose the big question, though, has always been, to what extent has that transformed the canon or what we used to call the mainstream? And I, I'd be a bit less, perhaps, positive um, about that in terms of, um, you know, I suppose there was always this, you know, certainly you mentioned silos, Tina. You know, on the other hand, you know, the, the, the whole, I suppose, movement within Irish academia around questioning authority, epistemic authority, hasn't just come from feminism. You mentioned um, migra migration studies, race, gender, class, you know, all of the hugely important work being done in Galway, for instance, um, in the Centre for the Study of uh, Labour, Gender and Class, you know, that, that John Cunningham and Sarah Ann Buckley are, are heading up there. Um, you know, that, that this, I think there's still a sense that, that that's what those people over there do, whereas the 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 the, the you know, the real centre of Irish studies, for instance, which I've also written quite a lot about, is something else. And, um, 
you know, I think that relationship between the canon and these other kinds of perspectives that have come from very marginal positions, as we've described, <laughs> just there, even in our conversation, um, that might be news to younger people, you know, um, you know, who didn't just arrive to these positions, you know, hey, presto, you know, that, that, that there's a whole context, I think, to biographical, structural, around uh, the kind of work we do, structural in terms of Irish universities, all those things we touched on there, class. Um, and then I wonder then about, I suppose, the broader structures and, you know, about whether there's an openness within what was called a canon. I mean, you might even challenge us, Adrian, say the canon doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and that's fine. But, you know, like, so but those kind of questions still interest me quite a lot about the, 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 the positioning, where we position ourselves theoretically, I think, in relation to the different disciplines in Irish studies. And when we wrote this book, it was quite easy because, you know, it, you know, uh, it, it was more marginal, I suppose, whereas now there's an awful lot of work, as we've outlined. So, so they're interesting questions. I'm interested to see how epistemic authority plays out um, important positions, all those kind of structural questions and the important books. What, get, what, what are the important books, so to speak? Yeah. Well, I mean, I know you, you start one of you started, I think it was you, Linda, by saying that one of the purposes of this book was start debates rather than kind of close it off and and if this conversation is anything to go by obviously it's been a quite successful book in that regard um and i think it, it it's clearly a a really wonderful archival resource as a book this might be a slightly insulting thing to say but it's perhaps also a historic document in its own right if i'm kind of aging you a no, little bit then. absolutely um and obviously it's a it's a as well as just being a very useful pedagogical text, it's also just a very readable and, and enjoyable text to read. Um, this has been a really wonderful conversation. Um, and I, I want to end before we go on too long, but thank you so much for, for this great conversation and, and for writing a great book. Thank you. Thanks, Aidan. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.